Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm glad you decided to join me. Come along. So this is uh, episode 223 in the podcast, and here we go. So I recently blogged about something that generated uh, some significant uh, response, and sometimes uh, there are different kinds of significant responses to uh, what I blog. Uh, one of them is when people are upset or outraged or they disagree. Uh, another kind of response, and that's what this one was was sort of intrigued, tell me more, this, uh, this might have something to it, but what about this, what about this, where it sort of stirs up some primal things with a stick, and nobody particularly is outraged, but there are a lot of questions. I was talking about, in this post, uh, the distinction between responsibility and guilt, the distinction between responsibility and guilt, and, and this comes up because over the years where I've been pastoring and where I've been doing marriage counseling, my operating assumption as a a couple comes in to see me is that the husband is 100% responsible for all the problems. Now, that needs to be uh, broken out or, or I need to make additional distinctions because I'm not saying that the husband is the only guilty party and the, and the wife can do no wrong. Uh, but as, as I've tried to teach on this and come at it from different uh, angles, many people think that I am either trying to accommodate with the uh, prevailing feminist sentiment, where the women are the oppressed class in the, in the matrix of cultural Marxism, in the, intersect- in the intersectional matrix. If you're part of the op- oppressed class, if you're a member of the oppressed class, then you are justified, and the oppressor class can do no right and the oppressed class can do no wrong. And in this um, matchup, the women are the oppressed class, and so consequently they, they can do no wrong, and, the, and masculinity is toxic, the men are the problem, men can do no right. And so when I say that the husband is 100% responsible, people sometimes think, is, is he giving way, to, is, is he giving too much or surrendering territory? to the feminist critique? And the answer is no, not at all. I believe that responsibility, I've said it many different uh, times, uh, authority flows to those who take responsibility and authority flees from those who try to evade responsibility. And I believe that responsibility is a function of covenant headship. So if Christ is the covenant head of the church and if husbands are the covenant heads of their homes, in a way that's analogous to Christ being the covenant head of the church, which we're led to believe by 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, God is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church, and the, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. If you have that framework, and if, if husbands are told to imita- uh, imitate Christ, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, then you have to have a distinction between guilt and responsibility. Jesus was never guilty of anything. He was sinless in every respect, even, even when he was, uh, even in his moment of dereliction on the cross, uh, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He's still quoting scripture, Psalm 22. He is still confessing his faith in God, my God, my God. And uh, he is uh, very plainly the suffering servant, the faithful servant. Christ was never individually guilty. He was never personally guilty. But he did take responsibility for things he didn't do. And not only is that a feature of the Christian faith, it's the very center of the Christian faith. And it is that particular center that husbands are commanded to imitate. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's say I have a counseling situation where, let's say, a family moves to town. I've never met them. They want to join our church and they want to see me for marriage counseling. And I don't know anything about the situation. I just know that it's Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz. All right. That's all I know. For all I know, for all I know, the presenting problems are the husband's infidelity, the husband's financial irresponsibility, the husband's anger problem, or it could be all those things on the wife's side. Let's say the wife has been unfaithful, or the wife is financially irresponsible, and the wife is a poor mom, and you know she, all the presenting problems are on her side. If she's the one sinning up a storm, then why do I say the husband is responsible? Well, the husband is responsible not in the sense that he has to confess the sin as though that she's committing as though he's committing them, but he's the head. He's responsible to deal with it. He's responsible to turn to God and speak on behalf of his household and bring his household to God and ask God to intervene and show him the way, show him what he needs to do in order to take that responsibility. So, taking responsibility is not the same thing as admitting guilt. Now, Obviously, in troubled marriages, the husband is frequently guilty also, but my saying the husband is always responsible is a function of his office. It's a function of the fact that he's the head. Uh, I'll finish uh, this set of observations with this. Um, when, when I sin, it's the, uh, the sins are the sins of Douglas. When my wife sins, the sins would be the sins of Nancy. But Let's say we've got some sort of snarl in the family, and God wants to talk to the Wilsons about how the Wilsons are doing. Who does he talk to? Well, he talks to the head. God talks to the head. And so, who should I talk to when I'm bringing this, the tangles of a family uh, to God? I should, I should approach God. There's a difference between approaching God as Douglas, who let's say I'm driving down the street and I get annoyed that someone took my parking spot. And that annoyance is a sort of a Douglas sin. That's all, you know, I'm out in my truck by myself. That's a Douglas sin. But let's say it's something that involves the household or involves the marriage. In that capacity, I'm functioning as an officer. I'm functioning as a public person. I'm a representative covenant head. And that's where the responsibility resides. Today, in our Martiology section, uh, we're, this is the podcast, episode 223. So, welcome back to Martiology 101, where we are looking at, we're, we're looking at the Greek words for various sins in the New Testament. Or rather, I should say that we're looking at Greek words for sins or Greek words that can refer to sin. So, sometimes the word is about something that's essentially sinful, and other times it's about a word that can be sinful depending on the context. 
Today, the word is ekaio, E-K-K-A-I-O, ekaio, which simply means burn. In this instance, the only use in the New Testament is a sinful one, uh, which we can determine from the context. So, obviously, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a sin to have a, a campfire burn, and it's not a sin to run a burn barrel. It's not a, it's not a sin to burn, but contextually, it can be. In Romans one twenty seven, and likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust. There it is, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat, or or we would say in modern English, which was fitting, which was appropriate. So, likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. In English, the writers of countless rock songs are most grateful that fire rhymes with desire, which is most fortunate because Scripture does compare the cravings of lust with fire. Uh, That is a good metaphor. It's a biblical metaphor. One of the negative consequences of this, however, for the person in the grip of lust, is that the house might easily burn down. It's not, uh, this is... uh, not the burning bush where the burning does not consume. Uh, the burning of lust is a burning which consumes. It's a burning which devours. It's a burning which uses up. So we are carrying on with episode 223 of the podcast, and here's our book review. This is our book review section. I recently read a book um, called Rigged. By Molly Hemingway, a book by Molly Hemingway called Rigged, and it's about the uh, 2020 presidential election. Now, uh, this is this is a delicate subject because it's you know for for two cents you can get yourself called or accused of being a conspiracy theorist for postulating what happened in the middle of the night in Fulton County, Georgia, or what you know you you can go down you can go down a wormhole talking about some specific things or some specific allegations. Uh, And I want to make a distinction first and then evaluate Hemingway's book based on what I think she does superbly and well. If we we find the butler with a knife in his back face down in the parlor, and we have no, you know, it's one of those uh, games where you're trying to figure out who done it or it's a it's a mystery novel, and you you want to know who who done it. The fact that you found the butler face down in the parlor with a knife in his back means that you have good reason for saying that he was murdered. You have um, you have a solid basis for alleging a murder. You don't have anything at all yet to allege who the murderer was. That would require an investigation. That requires you to play the game or to finish the novel that you're reading. Uh, you don't know who you don't know who done it, but you know someone done it. You know that you know that something something about this um, is fishy. I think it was Thoreau who said some facts are very suggestive, like a trout in the milk. So when you, when you find a trout in the milk, there are certain things that you can say. All right, that, uh, this uh, merits further inquiry. So the I think it is beyond beyond denying that the 2020 election was manifestly suspicious. Everything about it was suspicious. 
But sometimes people argue back by saying, you don't have any evidence that would send any particular person to jail. Right. We don't know who killed the butler, but we know that the fact that he's got a knife in his back means that something happened. And here's, and this, this is my lead in to uh, Hemingway's book. The thing that is good about her book, when basically the 2020 election was settled by a margin of about 45,000 votes across three states, had 45,000, and this is an election where millions, millions of people voted. And out of those millions, 45,000 votes across three states had it gone the other way with those three states and that, for, that margin of 45,000 votes, it would have been an electoral college tie. So this race was an electoral college squeaker, an electoral college squeaker. Now, if you want to um, be a, um, uh, what, I, what would they call it now? If you want to be an election denier, then uh, you would begin your discussion with election night. You'd begin your discussion with uh, how the votes were counted in Pennsylvania, how the votes were, uh, how they stopped counting. You'd You'd begin your book with Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania. You'd, you'd begin with those trouble spots. What Hemingway does is she begins like four years earlier with the surprise election of Donald Trump in the 2016 election. So the rigged system that the, the rigged system that we are up against when we're talking about the what culminated in the 2020 election was rigging that was manifestly on display out in public where everybody could see it for the four years prior to the 2020 election. And so what Hemingway does very shrewdly, I think, is that she, she works methodically through the years running up to the 2020 election, showing how there was a massive effort to, to change the rules of the game, to use the COVID pandemic as an excuse for loosening voting requirements to make it, and these, um, the changes, uh, mail-in, ball- ball- mail-in voting and all of these sorts of things made it much easier to cheat. And these are all things that were done in public. These were things that were done out in the open. So the fact that the FBI uh, t- tried to undermine the Trump administration from the get-go, from the from the from before he was elected, and then as soon as he was elected, the deep state started doing unconscionable things to undermine a duly elected president. And and incidentally, nobody is to, to date nobody's in jail over that. Shows you broad daylight rigging, broad daylight thumb on the scales, broad daylight monkey shines that need to be answered for. But everybody wants to reduce it to what you think happened in Fulton County and like everything rides on whether that suitcase full of ballots was was uh, unusual or not. That's that's not how we evaluate these things. That's not that's not what we want to do. So, uh, if you want a sober, sane, respectable analysis of how suspect the uh 
2020 election was. Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged, is for you. For more from Doug on covenant, responsibility, and guilt, listen to his book, Reforming Marriage. Audiobook available now at Canon Plus. Go to mycanonplus.com and start listening today. God.